from Exodus 31, verses 12 through 18. Um, If you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 72. And this is God's holy and errant word. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from his, among his people." Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses what he had finished when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray once more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of your spirit to come to accompany the preached word, to give understanding, to give illumination, and to prepare our hearts to receive what it is you want us to hear and how you want us to respond. We pray all this for your glory, for the good of your church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back in our series through the book of Exodus, and we are revisiting an issue that was brought up earlier when we studied the Ten Commandments. This morning's text is about the fourth commandment, about Sabbath keeping. And I think you'd agree with me that out of the ten, the fourth commandment has got to be the most confusing. God tells his covenant people to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. He says that you do that by not working on that day, but then what defines work, he doesn't say. And so the Israelites have always faced the practical challenge of determining what it looks like to actually keep the Sabbath. And if you know the story, you know that they eventually take it too far and they add layers of legalism and they lose the entire spirit of the law. Well, as readers of Scripture today, not only are we still confused as to what it actually looks like to keep Sabbath, we also have the added challenge of figuring out if Sabbath-keeping is even a relevant category anymore. Is it a part of our Christian obedience? Do the people of God today have to keep the Sabbath? Now, our society is equally confused about this issue of the Sabbath. If you grew up in the West up until the turn of the century, Most of us us experienced Sundays where there was no mail service, where you couldn't find a bank open and no one could buy alcohol or even household appliances or even a car on a Sunday. It wasn't just Chick-fil-A closed back then. There were a number of laws regulating commerce on Sundays, causing a 
feeling of inconvenience to many in society. These were known as blue laws, um, these laws regulating what kind of commerce could be done on a, Sabbath, on, on a Sunday. Now, most of these blue laws have been repealed by, um, by, by individual states, but even in our secular day and age, here in Texas, you still can't buy liquor on Sundays, uh, and car dealerships are required to close at least one day out of the weekend. It doesn't have to be Sunday anymore, but it can't be consecutive days on a weekend. And from a secular point of view, that really makes no sense. Why can't the dealership be open both days when the mall is? These remaining blue laws are simply vestiges of our society's religious heritage back when the Sabbath was observed by Christians and non-Christians alike. But today, even Christians don't know what to do with the Sabbath. We have a sense that it must have some relevance to us, and yet we're wary to avoid a strict adherence that would reek of legalism. And so Sabbath-keeping has really been boiled down to going to church on Sunday. That's what it means to most Christians. I keep the Sabbath holy by going to church. But that alone feels hollow. It's like we're missing something if keeping the Sabbath just means showing up for a worship service and being home an hour or two later in time for kickoff. This is really the third time that Sabbath keeping has already been brought up in the book of Exodus. It's going to be addressed once more in chapter 35, verses 1 to 3. And so as God is establishing his covenant people and he's describing what it's going to look like to have a relationship with him, Sabbath-keeping seems pretty significant. And so what's the significance? What did it mean to the Israelites in their day? What did the Sabbath signify? And then we have to ask, is Sabbath-keeping still required for God's people in our day? And depending on the answer, what difference will that actually make for you and for me? And for our practical obedience as the people of God. So in order to tackle all those important questions, we're going to walk through our text by uh, looking at three points. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you see an outline. The three points are this. We're going to look at the purpose of the Sabbath, the perpetuity of the Sabbath, and third, the practice of the Sabbath. So let's begin by considering the purpose of the Sabbath according to Scripture. What is it for? Well, we can answer that question in three ways. It was to refresh God's people, to remind God's people, and to reorient God's people. We'll look at each. First, the Sabbath was intended to refresh God's people. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word for rest. God's instructions were for his people to carry on their labor for six days of the week, but to set apart a day of rest on the seventh For Israel, that meant resting from their work from sundown Friday all the way until sundown Saturday. That was the typical Sabbath rest for Israel. Now, everyone in the household would rest. That would include even servants, even the livestock would rest. They wouldn't work the fields. They wouldn't collect the harvest, and they wouldn't employ anyone's service to do those very things for them. They would completely rest from their labor. 
Now, in both the fourth commandment in chapter 20 and in our text today, this command to rest on the Sabbath is rooted in God's created order. It's modeled after his own rest. Look at verse 17 with me again. It says, it is a sign, the Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So if even the Lord of all creation took one day to rest and be refreshed, then who are we to think that we don't need it? That's the logic here, the logic of the Sabbath. Now, we've noted before that one implication of being created in the image of a God who rested on the seventh is that all of us, because all of us are created in God's image, we all have a six plus one rhythm of life built in so that we flourish and that we are most productive when we respect that rhythm of life. If we disregard and ignore a Sabbath rest, if we overwork and overexert ourselves, we are really working against ourselves. We're rejecting our Creator's design. We're rejecting the way that He designed us to flourish as people made in His image. In fact, even secular authorities recognize the wisdom and value of a Sabbath rest. That's why, that's why even though most blue laws have been repealed by state legislatures. The fact is, the Supreme Court has consistently upheld their constitutionality, particularly back in the year 1961. In that year, in particular, there were four blue law cases that were brought to the court, and they were decided on that year, and in each of those cases, the Supreme Court upheld the law. Now, of course, they did so on secular grounds, but they still upheld those blue laws. Listen to Chief Justice Earl Warren. He recognized that, quote, the state seeks to set one day apart from all others as a day of rest, repose, recreation, and tranquility, a day which all members of the family and community have the opportunity to spend and enjoy a day together, a day on which there exists relative quiet and disassociation from the everyday intensity of commercial activities a day on which people may visit friends and relatives who are not available during the work days, end quote. He went on then to defend the promotion of all of those secular values through a common day of rest. Those who aren't Christian or Jewish or even religious still recognize the value of a Sabbath rest. And I think it's because of that six plus one rhythm that's in all of us, whether we consciously recognize it or not. And it just goes to show that God's image truly is imprinted on us all. But my whole point is this. By consciously taking a Sabbath, you are recognizing your creaturely limits. And you're respecting your creator's design. And in all of that, you will find refreshment. You will find new strength for a new week. That's one reason why we keep the Sabbath. That's the first purpose. Second, the Sabbath was intended to remind God's people, to remind God's people. It served as a sign. That's what the Lord calls the Sabbath in verses 13 and in verse 17. It's a sign 
Verse 13, above all, you shall keep the Sabbath. You shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, God had previously given Israel signs. He called them signs of the covenant. So when he promised to never again flood the earth as he did in the days of Noah, the sign of that covenant was a rainbow in the sky. When he promised to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. So whenever Israel would see a rainbow in the sky or whenever they would bring their son to get circumcised, they would be starkly reminded that they are a set-apart people. They are a holy people living in a covenant relationship with a holy God. Well, the same goes for the Sabbath. Look at, with me at verse 16 to 17. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, listen, as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. So the Sabbath was a covenant sign Whenever Israel saw that day on the calendar, whenever they were making their weekend plans, they were starkly reminded that they are a set-apart people. The people of other tribes, the people of other nations, they would do work on the seventh day if called for, but not Israel. Remember, this was an agrarian society, right? So, so no one back then had a five-day, nine-to-five work schedule because no one could predict when the fields would be ripe for harvest. And so if it so happened that the best time to pick the harvest fell on a Sabbath, well, the Israelites would stay home. And the, the Gentiles who are out there working the fields would be shaking their heads in disbelief that their Jewish neighbors would let a good harvest go to spoil just because it fell on the wrong day. But that's what it meant, to be holy, to be literally set apart from the nations. Circumcision, Sabbath keeping, you throw in kosher laws, these were all means by which Israel would set themselves apart from the nations. They were visible, tangible reminders. They were signs that they are God's chosen people. They are set apart to give a distinct witness as a holy people of a holy God. You know, if you think about it, any well-functioning sign is going to point you to another reality. So if you're driving down the street, you see a sign, it's going to remind you of something. It's going to remind you you're in a school zone. It's going to remind you that your exit is, is, is upcoming. The sign is drawing your attention to something. And so for Israel, the Sabbath as a sign, is drawing attention, not just to God in creation, as we've just said, but drawing attention to God in redemption. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses gives the Ten Commandments all over again a second time to a new generation of Israel who's on the cusp of entering into the promised land, and when he gets the fourth commandment, this time around, he specifically grounds the fourth commandment in their redemption. Listen, Uh, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. 
It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, for this reason, therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Well, I take that to mean that every time Israel kept the Sabbath, it was a weekly reminder that this Sabbath rest, this redemptive rest that they're experiencing in the promised land where they're no longer in bondage, no longer in chains, that that rest was a gift from a gracious God who saved them by his own might. They didn't work for that rest. They didn't work for their redemption. They didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. They just receive it by faith. And that's what Sabbath keeping is for, to remind you that the rest and refreshment that you enjoy is a good gift that you didn't work for or deserve. The Sabbath is intended to remind you of that. Third, it's to refresh you, to remind you. Third, the Sabbath is intended to reorient God's people. From the beginning, God's people have been tempted and enticed to put God on the margins and to center their lives on the idols of this world. We're going to see a clear example of that next week in our next chapter regarding the golden calf. There will always be competing claims on our attention, on our allegiance. There will always be certain people or possessions or pursuits that we are tempted to orient our lives around. And so the point of a Sabbath rest is not just to get a refresher, not just to rest from a tough week of work. The point is to intentionally enter into a holy moment to embrace a sacred time where you are intentionally meeting with God to worship Him and to reorient your life around Him. Look back at verse 13. Verse 13, for this is a sign between me and you throughout our generations that, this is the reason, the purpose, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now that really ties us back to the overall theme of Exodus where God is setting apart and saving a people for himself that they might know him. They might have knowledge of him, personal knowledge, that they therefore will then go spread that knowledge of him through their distinctive witness. If at the heart of Sabbath keeping is knowing the Lord and knowing his sanctifying purposes for his people, then that explains why the penalty for Sabbath breaking is so severe. That's why it calls for death. To profane the Sabbath is to communicate that knowing God is a trivial thing, that it doesn't matter because he doesn't really matter. That's why Sabbath-keeping was so important for Israel. Now, you know, I, I don't know about you, but, but at first glance, when I was you know, reading this, I, I couldn't make sense of why a long discussion on the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, which we looked at earlier, would suddenly shift here in this uh, passage to instructions on the Sabbath, right? It, it kind of felt like a tangent, but if you really think about it, they go together very well when you consider how the tabernacle, oh, you consider what the tabernacle and the Sabbath were always meant to symbolize. 
The tabernacle, think about this, was a holy place and the Sabbath a holy day where God's people could uniquely meet with him and worship. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God set apart sacred space and sacred time for his people. You gather here on this day to worship me. The pairing of sacred space and sacred time for God's people fits perfectly. It explains why instructions on the Sabbath would conclude an entire long section on instructions for the tabernacle and why later on in chapter 35 um, we, would we would come up again to instructions about the Sabbath before jumping right back into the tabernacle. It's because there are so many distractions for God's people, so many things vying for our attention and our allegiance that God wanted a sacred space in the middle of their camp, that's the tabernacle, and a sacred time at the culmination of their week, the Sabbath, so that the attention and allegiance of his people would be brought back and reoriented around him. That's why the Sabbath is important. That's why they were called to keep it. So far, we've been describing a threefold purpose for the Sabbath to refresh, to remind, and to reorient God's people. We see how the Sabbath was so significant for Israel in the Old Testament era. I hope that's clear to you. But of course, we're still left with the big question of whether Sabbath keeping is to be carried over into the New Testament era in which we live. It was clearly a covenant sign for Israel, but is it still applicable for the church today? Well, let's consider what I'm calling the perpetuity of the Sabbath, the question of, of whether or not it lasts forever. I say that because it is spoken of as a sign forever. That, that's what God calls it in verse 17. Look there again. It says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. And, and recall how Sabbath-keeping is grounded in God's good created order. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So because the Sabbath is called a sign forever, and because it has its roots in creation, we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss Sabbath-keeping as merely a feature of the Old Covenant that has no relevance for those under the New now, when it comes to things like requiring circumcision or keeping kosher laws, yes, that is easier for us to understand. We know that those laws are no longer binding for Christians. That's because when those instructions were given, they weren't grounded in creation, in God's good order, like the Sabbath was. But at the same time, at the same time, we know that just because an institution is grounded in creation, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be everlasting. I mean, just take marriage, for example, right? It's instituted in Genesis 2.24. It's instituted pre-fall. It's established in God's good created order. And yet we are taught by Jesus himself that marriage is a temporary institution that will end when the new creation comes. So 
in order to determine whether the Sabbath, or really just any Old Testament law or institution, is applicable today, we need to consider not just the context of when it was first established and whether it was, you know, before Genesis 3 or after, but we need to see whether it's reaffirmed in the pages of the New Testament. But that's where we see New Testament authors describing circumcision and kosher laws and even the Sabbath as signs and shadows that find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus and in his death and resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, is really the most relevant for us when it comes to the Sabbath. There he compares Sabbath keeping to a shadow whose real substance is Christ himself. So verse 16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with, with, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So just think with me of of the various ways in which Christ fulfills so many Old Testament promises and passages, in particular, the ones that speak of Old Testament realities in perpetuity, speaking of them as if they are going to last forever. So you've got God promising to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, that he will, quote, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David's throne will go on forever. Or 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3, God says that his name will be on Solomon's temple forever. He speaks of forever, but we know that both David's throne and Solomon's temple were disrupted or destroyed during the Babylonian exile. But the thing is, is that Christians, Christians have always insisted that even though that's what happened in history, we don't believe that God failed his promises, because we would argue that those forever promises were fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The throne and the temple are Old Testament shadows that find their substance in Christ. So just, just consider with me the glory of Christ and how he not only fulfills, but he expands these promises and blessings of God. Because of Christ, just think, because of Christ, the temple is no longer a holy place. Through Christ, we can meet with God anywhere, in any place. Because of the cross of Christ, the walls of hostility were broken down, and the veil of the Holy of Holies was torn, which meant the temple's purpose was fulfilled. There's no longer just one hill, one spot, one city where all of us must go to be in God's presence. From now on, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth anywhere. Because of Christ, the Levites are no longer a holy tribe. Through Christ, all of God's covenant people have immediate access where we can mediate him to our non-Christian friends and family. Because Christ was resurrected and ascended to the Father's right hand, where he ever lives to make intercession for us, those who are in Christ, we possess the gift and privilege 
of intercession. Like an Old Testament priest, we can make holy intercession, presenting requests to the Lord on behalf of others. That is an awesome privilege in Christ. And because of Christ, because of Christ, the Sabbath, friends, the Sabbath is no longer a holy day. Through Christ, all days are holy, and all days are to be lived out in His presence and in worship of God. Because Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, every hour of every day of the week is sacred time. Sacred time for you to meet with God. So under the Old Covenant, think about this again just in summary. Under the Old Covenant, there was a sacred space and a sacred time set apart for worship that was mediated by a sacred priestly class. But under the new covenant, all spaces, all days, all who are in Christ are now sacred. And I think that means the new covenant people of God, Christians, are not bound to keep the Sabbath as a matter of law. So back to our question, is Sabbath keeping still required for God's people today as a matter of law keeping? I would say no, because like circumcision, the Sabbath was a covenant sign fulfilled in Christ. Now, having said that, at the same time, I wouldn't go so far as to say that a practice of Sabbath keeping is irrelevant. I sympathize with those who bemoan the fact that Christians today have, for the most part, abandoned any kind of intentional Sabbath observance. That's even a relevant category anymore for people. It's usually just equated, like we said, with going to church. So let's talk about the practice of Sabbath today. This is our last point. First of all, even though the corporate worship of God is no longer restricted to a holy time and place, friends, there still is a biblical mandate in the New Testament for Christians to regularly assemble. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 tells us not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And there is scriptural evidence demonstrating that early Christians chose Sundays, the first day of the week, as that day to gather. So even though there's no restricted day anymore, there is good reason to treat Sundays as special out of all the days of the week. So just, 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 just think about how, how it all connects. There's no restricted space anymore. There's no temple but we know that there is something special that happens when two or more gather in Jesus' name, that Christ is present among us together in a distinct way that doesn't compare to our private worship. And even though there's no set priestly class anymore, we recognize the importance of elders among us, of those who are called by God to preach and teach, and we try to show them double honor. And so in the same way, even though there's no holy day or sacred time anymore, we can still recognize the importance of treating one day out of the week as special, as that particular day that the church assembles to worship and to remember our risen Lord and Savior. And that's why Sundays 
have been chosen from the start of the church. It's to remember the resurrection in our risen Lord. So we should start at least there. And I, I know I'm probably speaking to the choir, but this means that we should make it a priority to be at church every Sunday to worship with the people of God, to sit under biblical preaching, and to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But again, if Sabbath keeping is simply equated to going with going to church for just a couple of hours and then going back home and doing our own thing, then I'm afraid we've lost something. If it's true that the idea of a Sabbath is rooted in creation, if we are designed to operate with a six plus one rhythm of life, then a Sabbath rest would involve an entire day. Now again, it's not a matter of law, but I would say it's a matter of God honoring wisdom to respect the way that he designed us to flourish. And so I, I wouldn't label you I wouldn't label you a lawbreaker if your job or if your rotation requires you to occasionally work on Sunday. And I wouldn't call it sin or disobedience if you, you know, check your work email later today or if you crack open a book to study for a test tomorrow. I wouldn't call that sin, but I would question the wisdom of it. I think it would be good to ask ourselves why. Why do I feel the need to do that, to check that email, or to squeeze in a few more hours of studying? Why do you find it hard or sometimes practically impossible to pull away from your labor, from your studies, for just one day out of the week? Could you have worked more efficiently and prepared yourself better earlier in the week so that you're not under so much pressure on the Lord's day? If you're consistently using the Lord's day to do your own work and you haven't chosen an alternative day to rest, then what does that say about how you view yourself and how you view God? Because if God rested, why won't you? So if you're a student, if you're employed, you know that there's always more work that you could do. It'll never be enough. If you orient your life around meeting the demands of others at work or at school, you know that they'll never be satisfied. There's always more that you could do. So why not reorient your life around an all-sufficient God, an absolutely sovereign God who has no needs for you to meet and yet who graciously invites you into relationship with him through faith in his son. So I encourage you to set aside a full day out of the week to rest in God and with God's people, to rest from your work or from your studies, not as a matter of law, but as a matter of of witness. You see, by keeping a Sabbath rest, you are giving a witness. You are testifying to yourself, to your family members, to your colleagues and your classmates that the most important thing in life is not school, it's not work, it's God. Your life in God and with God's people. That's what's important. As your colleagues and classmates push on ahead while you're keeping the Sabbath, 
They may not understand why you would, quote-unquote, waste such precious hours, but they can't deny that God must be more valuable to you than whatever it is they're chasing after. And that's a compelling witness. But, friends, Sabbath-keeping, it's about more than just not working or not studying on one day. Otherwise, if that's all it was about, then it wouldn't really be very applicable for those who are retired, those who are are unemployed, or for those who are intentionally staying at home in order to care for children or for elderly parents. And so let's not just focus on what you shouldn't do on a Sabbath when it comes to work and study. Focus on what you can do intentionally. What can you do with intentionality to be refreshed and to remember that we are a set-apart people, holy to the Lord, and to reorient our hearts and schedules around the worship of God with God's people? So let's think about what a family can do to keep Sabbath together. I think when we go home after church, Family members tend to just spend the remainder of the Lord's day doing our own thing, exercising on our own, or reading on our own, or gaming on our own, or watching shows on our own. What about going on a walk together, reading a book out loud together, playing a board game together, watching something together, and then talking about it? Take a Sabbath rest together as a family. Parents, what will you do to set apart Sunday for your family that makes that day distinct, that makes it holy from every other day of the week? I don't mean less than going to church in the morning, but is there more? Is there anything more that you can do together to truly make it a full day of rest? Is there a healthy routine? Is there some tradition that you can introduce into your family life, to refresh your family members, to help each other remember that you are a family set apart for the Lord, and to reorient everyone in the home around the presence and worship of God. And for those of you who are living on your own, away from family, what can you do with the remainder of your Sunday that sets you apart as a member of a holy people who are wholly devoted to the Lord? I have no interest in making a list of approved activities. That's not what we're going to do. I'd rather challenge you to not be satisfied with the remainder of your Sabbath after you get home from church looking and feeling just like every other day of the week. What's going to make it holy? What will set it apart? What can you and fellow believers do to remind yourselves that you are a chosen people, holy and beloved, and to reorient yourselves around God? If it's truly the Lord's day, can you honestly say that you're spending it like it belongs to him? Let's honor him by keeping a Sabbath, not because we have to, but because we get to, because we love him and love his people. Father, help us in this. Thank you for whatever conviction that you provide through your word, and we pray for your spirit to give us the strength to obey and to make healthy changes in our lives, in our family life, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.